Our message today is called Holiness, Hatred, and Bigotry. I want to begin with a scripture that is Hebrews 12, 14. I'm going to read it to you here. It says, make every effort, somebody say every effort, to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The scripture goes on to say, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. This is a wartime pastor. You know that. When you come in and you know that I'm preaching that day, some of you have learned to brace yourself, especially if you're in sin. I want to tell you that my heart for this message is that I love people. I love them. My house is full of people every day. In the 22 years that Jennifer and I have been married, we've never had a three-month period where we didn't have guests living with us full-time. I love people, and I love sinners the most because that's grounds for miracles. I like to go after the worst. I like to go to the most remote places on the planet and look for the worst. And because of that, I could be accused of looking for a fight from time to time. I don't mind saying that Islam is wicked that the Quran is a satanic book, that Muhammad was a pedophile, and that his followers are confused. So controversy has never been a problem for me. And yet that's not my motivation today. My motivation today is that I genuinely love people. And hearing this hashtag floating around, love wins, is sticking under my skin. It's like a fly has landed on my eyeball. Hearing Christians say, homosexuality is wrong, but we love those people. While maybe a true statement, because I love people, it's beginning to make me a bit nauseous. That we feel like we need to qualify every statement about God's righteousness with some kind of balancing statement about your compassion. Homosexuality can be wrong whether you love people or not. The fact that we love them ought to make it easier to hear. We preach that pornography is wrong. We preach that sexual immorality of every kind is wrong. But we don't say porn is wicked. Porn is blasphemous. But we love those porn addicts. We don't feel the need to qualify it. But we do love porn addicts. I think it is a symbol of just how far slanted the church is. The enemy is inside the gates, friends. Like Samson, we're asleep in the lap of a harlot and the enemy is upon us and we've not begun to rouse ourselves. And I hear the Spirit of God saying, wake up, wake up, let Christ's light shine upon you. This morning, I hope that this will be a wake-up call. Your pastors have met for every service. These have been collaborative messages. You'll be hard-pressed to find three equal pastors in any church, but in this one, that's exactly what we are. There are no seniors and associates. We are simply pastors. To find three pastors that work as equals and collaborate on every message to make sure that the unified Word of God is coming out clearly is a special thing. Amen. This morning we met... And we're in unison. The truth is, is that holiness, hatred, and bigotry 
now have a relationship in this country. I want to show you our Supreme Court justices. I normally stick to the Scripture and the Scripture alone. But I was just a little bit shocked as I looked at these biographies. The majority decision, the five Supreme Court justices that gave us this immoral ruling are pictured on top. Let that sink in for a minute. There's probably no comment even necessary. In the minority, we had on the bottom John Roberts. We had Justice Alito. We have Scalia. And we have Thomas. I'm not singing their praises today. I simply want to tell you that Exodus 23.2 says this. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. That's pretty simple. What's your interpretation of that? You know what the Hebrew says here? It says, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. That's exactly what it says. There's nothing ambiguous about this. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. When social winds change, morality does not change. My ethics are not situational. And because of that, they will certainly cost our lives. This is what Jesus has said. I want to read to you from the dissenting opinions. By the way, if you would like to see the dissenting opinions, I printed them for you. I'm going to set them on the stage. It's about 109 pages. While you might not enjoy reading legal documents, this is one of the more historic decisions in the history of the world and certainly in our country's history, and for all of the wrong reasons. Say, well, I came to church to hear about the Lord. Politics has got nothing to do with it. Have you ever looked at the ministry of John the Baptist? When I read these, it's solely to throw a warning shot across the bow. If you were in a local bar witnessing, if you were hanging out at Hobby Lobby, doing anything other than gossiping. And you heard people say these things, you could dismiss it. But when you consider that these are the highest legal authorities in our nation, and our nation has been the leading nation in the world for the last couple hundred years, you have to take this seriously. These are not local yokels just spouting off conspiracy theories these are direct quotes. The only thing that has been changed is I have bolded words. And from time to time, if there is a Latin phrase meant to call attention to a precedent, I removed it. In his first American dictionary, this is John Roberts speaking in his dissenting opinion. Noah Webster defined marriage as the legal union of a man and woman for life which serve the purposes of preventing the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes, promoting domestic felicity, and securing the maintenance and education of children. As early as our nation sought to define our words, the very first dictionary that our country ever produced, that is how marriage was defined. He goes on to say, today's decision... For example, create serious questions about religious liberty. 
Many good and decent people oppose same-sex marriage as a tenet of faith. And their freedom to exercise religion is, unlike the right imagined by the majority, actually spelled out in the Constitution in the First Amendment. When Supreme Court justices are talking about offenses against the amendments, when Supreme Court justices are warning that religious liberties are at stake, you have to wonder how secular judges are seeing what the church is not. He goes on to say in this slide, hard questions arise when people of faith exercise religion in ways that may be seen to conflict with the new right to same-sex marriage. When, for example, a religious college provides married student housing only to the opposite-sex married couples, or a religious adoption agency declines to place children with the same-sex married couples. Indeed, the Solicitor General candidly acknowledged that the tax exemptions of some religious institutions would be in question. Look at the last line. Unfortunately, people of faith can take no comfort in the treatment they receive from the majority today. Tax exemptions for religious institutions date to the time period of the Persian kingdom. Have you ever read the book of Nehemiah? The governors of trans-Euphrates were not allowed to levy taxes against the Jews by order of Cyrus. But in our time, it's beginning to be a question. Of course, those same tax exemptions have been a muzzle and a restraint on many ministries. Don't venture into speaking about candidates. Don't venture into talking about the real social issues of the day. You'll lose your tax-exempt status. Come get it. If you give in this church because you get a tax deduction, then friends, you've been sleeping through messages you should have been repenting in. Maybe the most scary thing, and I'm not a scared person, maybe the most alarming thing, he goes on to say is perhaps the most discouraging aspect of today's decision is the extent to which the majority feels compelled to sully those on the other side of the debate. How much for tolerance? By the majority's account, Americans who did nothing more then follow the understanding of marriage that has existed for our entire history. In particular, the tens of millions of people who voted to reaffirm their state's enduring definition of marriage have acted to lock out, disparage, disrespect, and subordinate and inflict dignitary wounds upon their gay and lesbian neighbors. Isn't it interesting that when light will not accept darkness, it is an offense to darkness? These apparent assaults on the character of fair-minded people will have an effect in society and in court. That is a secular judge speaking. Moreover, they are entirely gratuitous. It is one thing for the majority to conclude that the Constitution protects a right to same-sex marriage. It is something else to portray everyone, say everyone, everyone, who does not share the majority's better informed understanding as bigoted. If you're searching for the definition of bigoted in your mind, it is when you are intolerant of another's view. God is intolerant of certain views. 
from Scalia. The very first line of his dissent. Either way, you folks who are taking pictures, I love it. You keep doing it. And we will put every word of this online like we do everything else. I want the world to know where we stand on every single issue. We do not hide in a corner in this church. In the very first line of his dissent, he said, I write separately to call attention to this court's threat. Say threat. To American democracy. A Supreme Court justice called this decision a threat to democracy. Today's decree says that my ruler and the ruler of 320 million Americans coast to coast is a majority of the nine lawyers on the Supreme Court. That is not the nation that we were born into or immigrated to. This practice of constitutional revision by an unelected committee of nine, always accompanied as it is today by extravagant praise of liberty, robs the people of the most important liberty they asserted in the Declaration of Independence and won in the Revolution of 1776, the freedom to govern themselves. When a Supreme Court justice is reminding us that we fought a war over this issue, somebody ought to think that's a little bit alarming. How is it that these secular men know instinctively that battles were fought over these, but the church folds its hands, sits on its salvation, and ducks and hides and waits to be ruptured from their responsibility to be a light to the world? A system of government that makes the people subordinate to a committee of nine unelected lawyers does not deserve to be called a democracy. I didn't say that. He said that. If you're thinking, oh, well, very often they write things like this. I challenge you to find any time in history they ever wrote anything coming close to this. The five justices who compose today's majority are entirely comfortable concluding that every state violated the Constitution for all of the 135 years between the 14th Amendment's ratification and Massachusetts' permitting of same-sex marriage in 2003. They have discovered in the 14th Amendment a fundamental right overlooked by every person alive at the time of the ratification and almost everyone else in the time since. But we're the narrow-minded hypocrites. I love that Thomas looks in his picture as if he is disgusted with what is going on. Aside from undermining the political processes that protect our liberty, the majority's decision threatens religious liberty our nation has long sought to protect. He goes on to speak of unavoidable and wide-ranging implications for religious liberty. He even quotes the Seventh-day Adventist convention here. He says, in our society, marriage is not simply a governmental institution. It is a religious institution as well. Today's decision might change the former, but it cannot change the latter. It appears all but inevitable that the two will come into conflict. The secular judges are warning us that there is inherent conflict at hands. But today's powder puff Christians and pillow prophets are saying, peace, peace, 
peace. It's all about love. Meanwhile, they line their pockets with your money. And they fly in their jets to meeting after meeting, neglecting the poor, neglecting justice, neglecting the weightier matters of the law. But you and I are the weird ones. Alito. The decision will also have other important consequences. It will be used to vilify. Do you hear that word? Vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. In the course of its opinion, the majority compares traditional marriage laws to laws that denied equal treatment for African Americans and women. That's the biggest insult to the civil rights and suffrage movement that there's ever been. We're comparing behaviors with your skin color. We're comparing behaviors with your gender. I saw one little meme that had a baby being born and the caption above the doctor's head said, when he's 18 or 20, we'll ask him what he wants to be. This is silly. It's lost all reason. The implications of this analogy will be exploited by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent. Listen, I have no desire to fly Confederate flags. I understand that they can be, and for most are, a racist symbol. I love people. I love people of every color. I love people of every nationality. The truth is, I don't see those things. And I'm very concerned when people constantly draw attention to it. But has it occurred to anybody that perhaps the reason that right now these issues go hand in hand is that the spiritual powers want to remove even the thought that there has ever been anyone who dissented from the federal government? Alito goes on to say this, and I don't know whether it's tongue-in-cheek. I don't even know how to take it other than a Supreme Court justice said it. I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. He goes on to describe the marginalization of many Americans. Maybe the most shocking thing that he says is this last one. If a bare majority of justices can invent a new right and impose that right on the rest of the country, the only real limit on what future majorities will be able to do is their own sense of what those with political power and cultural influences are willing to tolerate. Even enthusiastic supporters of same-sex marriage should worry about the scope of the power that today's majority claims. I don't know what to say, saints, other than it is good to live in a time like this. This is not a dividing line between the church and the world. This is a separation of sheep and goats that are supposed to be within the flock of God. If those weak-willed sisters masquerading as men that claim to pastor us cannot stand up on these issues, then what issue will they be able to stand up on? Pansies and daffodils have no place on the battlefield. 
I want to read something to you out of Psalm 36. Is it okay if I digress? In Psalm 36, where did I offend the flower coalition somewhere? Pansies and daffodils. It's tiring trying to keep up with everything that someone finds offensive. Jesus Christ offended someone in every chapter that he spoke in. I doubt he'd get invited back in any church. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. Did you hear that? For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Even on his bed, he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. When I hear Christian theologians trying to justify the most immoral behavior on earth, they are defending God from his own Bible. Jesus' words become a footnote to satisfy critics. But they are not in the hearts of the people speaking. Lamentations 2.4 speaks of this time. The setting is that the people of God have failed to keep God's word. The world is going to suffer because God's priest did not do what they were supposed to do. They didn't honor a Sabbath and show the world faith. They didn't keep the feast of God and teach about the plan of God. And because they didn't do those things, God's judgment came and the world was darker for it. And in Lamentations 2, verse 14, Jeremiah is fighting through tearful eyes to say these words. The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sins. Say expose sin. To ward off your captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. Man, if you think that you have a growth somewhere in your body, you'll go to the doctor. You'll get examined in every possible way. If they still don't find it, They'll send you to get x-rays. If they don't find it because it's in the soft tissue, you'll get an MRI or a CAT scan. You'll look as deeply as you can so that nothing is hidden within you. But when we go to church, we say, don't you point out my sin. Who are you to judge? When we go to church, we're like, look, I won't see yours. You don't see mine. And so the church resembles the world. In here, there are sons and daughters of the living God. In here, there are men and women who are as serious as they come about the kingdom. The most serious Christians you will find repent the most often. The most serious Christians you will find are so aware of their weakness that it creates a profound dependence upon God's Spirit. It is not ignoring sin that causes us to love God. It's acknowledging our sin and asking Him to make up the difference between our sin and His righteousness. The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. You can turn on the TV or the radio any hour of the day and hear how to get rich, healthy, and wealthy, and it is worthless. 
Let me ask you, would you rather be a millionaire? Or would you rather be raising the dead barefooted in a foreign country? There is a reason why the miracle power of God exists to greater extent in other places than it does here. The desperation is extraordinary there. The faith is extraordinary there. The people are hungry. And here, our prophets tell lies. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. Let me tell you what is at stake. When we cannot lovingly look at someone and say your behavior is evil, then they are in captivity to evil behavior with no hope of liberation. The best thing that could happen is somebody become offended at themselves over their behavior. That it causes such a poverty of spirit in them that they say there's nothing good in me. And because of that, they become meek. They have no resistance to what God would want to do in their lives. And because of that, they become hungry and thirsty for righteousness because the God that I serve will meet any man in that situation regardless of what they've done. But the attitude that He accepts men regardless of the condition of their heart while they cling to their wickedness and love their idols is patently false. I want to tell you that we are not much different than Samson asleep in the lap of the prostitute. The warnings are all around us. We need to rouse ourselves, wake ourselves. It's time to ask God, one more time will you shake the pillars. One more time will you let me die that your word might live on in their hearts. We have to return to a sacrificial gospel. Forgive me, ladies, but a masculine holiness, the kind of thing that you would want in any man that would be a priest in your home, the kind that will not bend, bow, shut up, or let up, the kind that you can trust to be more than a passing fancy, to be a deep conviction given by the Holy Ghost. We are born into our orientations. There is no doubt about that. The lie is that your orientation cannot change. Does anybody in here have a child around or under two? As soon as they can speak, they lie. Children are born liars. Did you go to the bathroom? Uh-uh. Really? Because you got a 20-pound body and a 30-pound diaper. It's dragging behind you. Uh, he did it. But when the Spirit of God enters a man and regenerates him, he's a liar no more. He straps on the belt of truth. The world would have you believe that if you were born a liar, you have no choice but to be a liar. Perhaps it's because their father is a liar. Deuteronomy 5.29 says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. Somebody say inclined. Inclined is a bent. It's a slope. God knew that man's heart was inclined, tilted the wrong way. Some of you are too young to remember it, but back when we played pinball, if the ball wasn't going the direction you wanted, 
You gave it a good shove with your hip. And some of them had a little sensor in it that said tilt and the paddles locked up and you lost the ball on that round. God knew that we were inclined the wrong way and He gave us His righteous law. Say righteous law. Paul said the law is holy, spiritual, and good. He said it in the seventh chapter of Romans. Because he wanted to address the evil inclination of our hearts. The Hebrews called this the Yetzer Ra, evil inclination in every human being. It means given the opportunity, human beings are selfish. Given the opportunity, they're greedy. Given the opportunity, they act in fear and in hate. And the only thing that corrects it is an infusion of God's character by His Word and His Spirit. In Genesis 6, we find that testimony about all mankind. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. But today we're being told that everybody's a pretty good person or who are you to say otherwise? Things that you would have been jailed for now are publicly acceptable. The next thing that you will hear is that polygamy and pedophilia are just an orientation. By the way, governments honor same-sex marriages because they are productive for the government. They produce taxpayers. They produce citizens. Homosexuality is a luxury that no nation on earth has ever been able to afford on a mass scale because you will not reproduce your citizens. The passages that you see at the bottom are so numerous that I won't read them. If you doubt that you were born an original sinner, then you have not picked up your Bible enough. The native condition of a man's heart is that he is a slave to sin and less liberated by the living God. Why am I considered a hater? Why might you be considered a hater? Ephesians 5 says it so clearly. For you were once darkness, but now you are light. Could there be a bigger transformation than going from darkness to light? That's not a bad man becoming a little bit better. That is a dead man coming to life. There is no bigger contrast available to the writer than to go from dark to light. But that's what this Bible is about. From the first chapter, when God spoke into the darkness, He created light and He separated the two. And that brought life to the world. Let us not mingle darkness with light now. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Say that. Find out what pleases the Lord. Do you want to know? Do you want to find out? Well, perhaps we could go deeper than a little track that says the four spiritual laws. Perhaps we could go deeper than a sinner's prayer that someone else wrote. Perhaps we could go a little deeper than your church's doctrinal statement. Perhaps you could actually press into the heart of God and ask Him how He feels about a subject. Did you know that Jesus Christ got mad enough to turn over tables? Did you know that he made a whip? 
Did you know that he threw his disciples into a boat? The king of kings does not sit back like the stay-puffed marshmallow man and watch the world go to hell in a handbasket. He acted to interject in human history. And he did it at a time that we were wicked sinners in an effort to make us sons of God. Let's not diminish being sons of God by acting as if everyone does it. We're all children of God. No, you're children of the devil. So I couldn't say that. Jesus did. Are you more holy than Jesus? Paul did. Are you more holy than Paul? Church, we're going to have to find our footing. Say, well, one sister wrote about a brother in this church on his Facebook. He quoted a scripture, only a scripture. That's all he put. Her response was, you won't win anybody with hate. So now the scripture has become hate. She went on to say, you'll catch more flies with honey. Well, sweetheart, Baal is the god of the flies and the dung. I wasn't looking for flies. I'm looking for dead men that will come alive and become sons of the living God and storm hell with a water gun if necessary. I didn't come for the well-fed sheep already in the pen. We want to kick down the gates of hell and set up rescue shops for the lost. But if they're not knowing they're lost, how will they know they need to be saved? Verse 11, have nothing to do with their fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Your life, by its very nature, exposes darkness. Have you ever just refrained from gossip in a circle and the people around you could not quite let it go? They needed you to agree with them because if you'll agree with them, then they're not so guilty, except they would be. You just would be guilty with them. Have you ever noticed that they actually think it's strange that you don't flood into the same dissipation with them? It's convicting to the lost to stand next to the righteous because your life is a testimony that it's possible to go from homosexual to a man born in the presence of God. It's possible to go from a liar to a man who is born of the truth. It's possible to go from the same disease stock that all human beings come from right into the heavenly race that the Son of God has birthed on the earth. For it is shameful even to mention what, is diso- what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For the light, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Church, I think this is a prophetic word. Wake up. O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. You might be able to live with an enemy on another continent. Maybe you can live with them on your continent. Maybe in your country. Maybe in your neighborhood. Maybe in the yard to your house. But friends, evil is trying to crawl right into your children's bedrooms. We need to wake up. We had a public official in this city put our children at risk by declaring all bathrooms gender neutral. If you feel like a woman that day, 
then you go in the woman's bathroom no matter what your genitalia is. And the largest churches in our city said nothing. Some of the larger churches did say something, but the largest churches said nothing. Lollipops. Pudding. Daffodils and cotton candy. That's the stuff those men are made of. There is no Holy Ghost steel in those spines. And because of it, they are marching congregations straight towards hell. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ's light will shine on you. When will Christ's light shine? When we wake up. You remember the, the prodigal of the lost son that is more accurately about the father. I forgot, I'm not supposed to leave the stage today, Rick. We had lights go out. I'm going to dwell in the light. The prodigal came to his senses and thought to himself, even in my father's house, the servants are better fed. If people don't know they're eating with pigs, then they won't know the father's house is better. That's why the enemy is trying so hard to convolute this issue. If you are tempted in a moment to go, I would feel so uncomfortable if a member of the gay and lesbian and transgendered and transspecies, whatever it is these days, coalition of dolphins, goats, and golden retrievers, was here, I just don't know what I would do. You need to understand something. Sitting among you right now are former homosexuals. Sitting among you right now are former idolaters and immoral people. And you know what? They were changed by the power of God. There was a time a man came to me and said, Pastor, you cannot afford to be seen with me. I am known in this town for immoral things. I said, do you plan to continue immorality? No, I do not. Then come sit on the front row. I have watched their lives completely restored, not just back to what it could have been, but better than anybody could ask for, immeasurably better. The lie is that there is no place in the church for the former sinner and the church is only made of former, former sinners. It is not unloving to point out a behavior that kills people. It is loving to warn them that they're headed for destruction. This is the basis for all evangelism. Proverbs 8.13 This is why I am a hater and I, I'm proud to be a hater. So in today's texting speech, you just say haters are going to hate and label me. Put it out there. Tell the whole world, I'm good with it. Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to? How do you show that you fear the Lord? You hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Can you say, I hate evil behavior? I hate evil behavior. Now, if you feel the need to have to go write a treatise on the difference between hating a behavior and hating a person, that shows the level to which our intellect has declined into stupidity. Of course, we have at least... Five Supreme Court justices that cannot tell the difference between a person and the person's behavior. 
That is the state of things. I went to McDonald's once, but I am not a hamburger. I can hate a behavior and love the person enough to want them liberated from that. But it is not loving to watch somebody doing something that is harming their soul and sit back and go, oh, I don't want to offend. There is no place for cowards in Christianity. Read the 21st chapter of Revelation. Cowards do not enter the kingdom. We're going to have to find our heavenly courage. That's not mean. That's not ugly. That's not the Westboro Baptist thing where they're running around with slogans and epithets. You know what we need? We need the Word of God. That's all we've ever needed. Last week, Pastor Sutherland gave you an amazing word. Amos 5.15, hate evil, love good. Hear this, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. You know what determines mercy? Hating evil, loving good, and maintaining justice. What happens when you love evil, hate good, and refuse to maintain justice? Guys, I don't have to be a prophet to know that God will judge this nation. I don't have to be a prophet to know that. I can listen to the prophets. But it just so happens for about 10 years now, in the privacy of our prayer closets and in some of the pastoral prayer meetings, we are shaken to our core with what is coming upon this nation. I'm not scared of persecution. I prefer to live in persecuted countries. At least I know who my brothers are. I'm scared for the lack of preparation for adversity in the general populace that calls itself the church. I'm scared for them because they've been fed a lie of comfort and affluence. The God of all comfort afflicts the the comfortable and He comforts the afflicted. This is true around the world. My brothers in India walk miles to meetings, have no air conditioners, and we have six and seven hour meetings, break for 30 minutes and then meet for another six to eight hours, and we do it all of the time. Of course, their sick get healed. Their pastors reconcile and wash each other's feet. Nobody's concerned about who's steeple taller or how many seats are in a building. Most of the time we sit on the floor. Church, they have pity on us. They have pity on us because they're rich in faith. And we're only rich in deeds and that will be taken. That's God's blessing to us. Affluence has been an enemy of the church. Affluence has caused such excess in luxury that people have time to be full-time homosexual activists. A bigot for Jesus. That's me, in case you were guessing. I, I'm going to get a shirt that says bearded bigot. And I don't ever intend to lose either. In John 15, pick up with me in the 18th verse. Are you all there? If the world hates you, keep in mind that hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Friends, woe to you when the whole world speaks well of you. Woe to you when you are popular. Woe to you when you are the best-selling author and the stuff you write about is fit for the fertilizer. I'm in trouble. Fit for farming. I can't tell you what Eleanor Roosevelt tried to get Teddy Roosevelt to quit saying. As it is, 
You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If you operate under heaven's standard while standing on the earth, then those who are of the earth will hate you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they will have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my Father as well. If you hate the words of Christ, then you hate the God of the universe. The Supreme Court or the Supreme Being? That's a great choice, isn't it? Whose word carries more weight with you? Are you only a Christian if you won't be imprisoned for it? Are you only a Christian as long as it costs you nothing? Do you want a victory without cost? Or does your heart rise up and say victory at all cost? Hmm? Guys, our lives are full of so many things. It's been rattling in my ears. Don't let the urgent get in the way of the important. This is important. Nothing else matters. Strengthen the flock. Get their feet set on the right foundation because there is a flood coming. If we had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm a miracle. Come on now, our orientations were all wrong. They were all into sin, whatever your sin was. But Jesus Christ has changed you. Your testimony is the liberating power for the gay and lesbian community. They need to hear it. I'm going to tell you the truth. I admire them. Because at least they're gay and lesbian full time. With 2 to 4% of the population, they've gotten the entire nation to swing their way. What could Christians do? Whatever our true number is in this country. Eliminate the professing. Eliminate those who only profess, rather. Whatever that true number is, surely if we were Christians 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we would have a greater influence than we do now. I don't begrudge the gay and lesbian community. They're lost. I begrudge the pastors that have laid down on their job and let their sheep get devoured. Amen. We need to adjust our expectations. At the top of the screen, it says 2 Timothy 3.12. That says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You, you understand that? Will be persecuted. There's no exception for Americans. There's no exception for Canadians. There's no exception if you're from New Zealand or from the UK. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be Hey, friends, it's going to be our turn. Hey, man, I'm so glad. At least I won't have to share my prison cell with the lukewarm and the putrid. I found I can endure anything, hell on earth, as long as I have real brothers with me. Stephen and I have thrown up together in many countries. We've carried each other's bags. We've shared each other's food and drank the same unboiled water that gave us all parasites anything is endurable if you share it with those who are in Christ 
Nothing is endurable when you are trying to mix one or two sheep with 35 goats pretending to be sheep. I love this church. I love it. I told Matthew and Wade their job is to gather and mine is to call. I believe that goats can become sheep, but I have no interest in just pretending. This is a church where we love each other enough to call it out. We love each other enough to disciple because it's ultimately unloving to watch somebody go to hell when you could make a difference. Adjusting our expectations, Matthew 10, 22. All men will hate you because of... Your love for Jesus will make them hate you. Everybody says they love Jesus as long as you don't tell them what Jesus says about them. Everybody wants to go to heaven as long as God's not there when you get there. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. How long do you have to stand firm? Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. Friends, when your name is so hidden in his name that they consider you evil because of your association, that is an honor. In Hebrew, the word name is shem. It means your character, your body of work, your reputation. Is your reputation wrapped up in Christ? If it is, then they'll treat you like they did Christ. John 17, 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. What was the distinguishing factor? God's word. For they are not of the world any more than I'm of the world. The Word of God enters into a man and it causes you to be born of heaven instead of born of this world. And when you're born of heaven and the Word of God defines your thoughts, your actions, all of those things, the world will hate you for it because your existence condemns them. Even if you're not trying to. You are like a ruler, like a tape measure, declaring the world short of God. And they hate the standard. It's rumored that Charles Finney sat on trains and said not a word. And people sitting next to him said, Sir, when I'm in your presence, I feel convicted of sin. Oh, that we would walk in the holiness of God like that. Hating evil behavior is part of loving people and God. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, my brother, if the world hates you. It's expected! Have you ever seen that in the first four centuries of Christianity, the normal expectation was martyrdom? Now the normal expectation is 365 confessions of wealth and prosperity, a Mercedes Benz, and if you do a really good job of lying to God's people, you too can have your own private jet. It's wickedness. And it came from the house of God. That's the problem. You say, wait, those men are still doing really good things. I know, that's the problem. Is the devil quotes scripture. That's the problem. Is that doing a few good things does not wipe away leading the congregations of God into hell. It doesn't. Being a nice person doesn't do it. By the way, get to know them. They're not as nice as they, think, as they look on TV. That's why they keep you at a distance. That's why they live in gated communities and have secret service agents walking around with them to make sure you don't get close to them. I don't even lock my door. You can stop by my house any hour of the day or night. 
on any given day. You can check with any of the pastors. We live here exactly as we do there and vice versa. You'll find things about us that are greatly offensive. I'm offended at myself sometimes. I wish I didn't like food as much as I do. I love it. It's it's wonderful. The righteous eat till their heart's content. The bellies of the wicked grow hungry. See, pastors even know how to justify their own sin. I drive too fast. Like Elijah, I tuck my cloak in my belt and outrun the chariots. From time to time, it's possible that you'll smell things being burned before the presence of God in the study while I'm reading the Word. How we major on minors and ignore the camels. Revelation 2.6 has a shocking statement. This is the church at Ephesus. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. God likes it when you're against the things He's against. The behaviors, the practices of the Nicolaitans. When Jesus began to preach, in Matthew 4.17, we have come just right out of the temptation. It is the very first time Jesus begins to preach in the first red letters after the temptation. Very first ones in every Bible. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You want to know what the beginning of the good news is? It's repentance. You cannot repent if you do not know you are going the wrong way. Don't tell me that Christ is so loving that He does not point out sin. Repentance is the basis, the foundation of all walking with God. Because a few paragraphs later in Matthew 5, 3, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, how do you get that way? What is poverty of the spirit? It's when you realize that in comparison to God, you are bankrupt morally. That your very best efforts to be holy are like spitting in the ocean of His righteousness. You can't come close. And that causes a mourning in your heart. Which causes you to be meek. Meekness is not some mealy-mouthed, milk-sop Christian. Meekness is the one who has no resistance to what God wants to do. God says, shut up, you shut up. He says, speak up, you speak up. You don't have a say in the matter. Meekness is a lack of resistance. The way you get that way is when you're broken over your condition. Then you become hungry and thirsty for righteousness and He'll fill you. I love to do street ministry. I love to do prison ministry. I love to do ministry everywhere. I'm not a full-time Christian minister because I earn a living preaching. I'm a full-time Christian minister because I got born again. I didn't ever see an option for a part-time Christian. Nobody told me that there was a chance to be a Christian a couple hours a week and a devil every other hour. Do you love the Lord? One thing that is happening... And I'm just going to tell you the truth. I disparage Facebook all of the time. Those of you that think you have Facebook ministries, you know I regularly lob bombs at you. I love you. Lately, 
I've snuck over to the dark side. I've been reading Facebook because I want to see what all of the people are saying. One thing that I'm, I'm just amazed at is the number of people that are like, no, no, I hadn't read the Bible, but I know it's wrong. I'm confident that it's wrong, and I have no idea what it says. I'm equally amazed by the number of people that claim to know what it says and don't have the first clue what they're talking about. I really object to the word friends, by the way. The people that are listed as my friends are not my friends. You know who my friends are? Those who do the will of God. You know, somebody clicking a button next to your name does not make them your friend. You want to prove that? Move. Move. See who shows up. If you have 3,000 Facebook friends and not three people that come to help you move, that ought to tell you something. Now, I don't know whether Herbert Spencer said this or not. It's one of those contested uh, quotations. Having said that, it's been attributed to him for years. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. If you've decided that the Bible is wrong before you've read it, then no one can help you. But I can tell you this, every skeptic that ever set out to prove the Bible was wrong ended up a believer. You read the history of the Bible and it is the most profound thing you'll ever hear in your life. The number distributed every hour, the number of lives changed around the world. I, I've preached about it endlessly. It's not happening today. Let me show you a chart. This chart is floating around. Do you still think homosexuality is sinful, it says? Well, I want you to know, yes. Yes, it's wicked. Are we clear there? At least, at least you know, we don't have double-minded preaching. So the little chart, I know it's small. In the bottom left-hand corner, the, the decision matrix that's floating around is... Hey, why do you think it's wrong? Well, if, if Jesus said so, then it's wrong. They twist Jesus' words to say, no, 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 he never said it was wrong. Friends, Jesus is the Word of God. You understand? John, the first chapter, and the 14th verse says, the Word became flesh. Well, let me ask you, what Word had existed prior to the first century? All of the Older Testament. And it became flesh in Jesus. The same God that says if a man lies with a man, it's an abomination, became flesh. Everything about Jesus is contrary to sin. And homosexuality is sin. But in the bottom left-hand corner, it says have fun living your sexist, chauvinistic, judgmental, xenophobic, because the larger words you use, the more right they must be. Lifestyle choice. The rest of culture will advance forward without you. They're so progressive. One of the other options is, well, because the Old Testament says so. Of course, the decision chart takes you right into, well, the Old Testament says don't eat shellfish. And if that doesn't apply to you, what makes you think the other things apply to you? You know, an ignorance of the Word really hurts God's people. Deuteronomy 14, I'm sorry, yeah, 14. It clearly says that if 
a Jew finds on the road a dead animal. He can't eat it. But he can give it to an alien. He can give it to a foreigner. He can even sell it to a foreigner. This is because God had one standard for Israel to keep them unique as a nation, distinct among all people groups, and another standard for all of mankind. In other words, the dietary laws were not about morality. Obedience was about morality. And they, their obeying or not obeying showed whether or not they trusted God. The New Testament also agrees with this. But when you don't understand what you're reading or you didn't read it at all because your predetermined conclusion was that Christians are sexist, chauvinist, judgmental, xenophobic, and the rest of culture is moving on without us. By the way, Adam and Eve said, well, I don't believe in homosexuality because of Adam and Eve. They say, hey, that's when the earth was not populated yet. But now that there's 6.79 billion people, clearly this is not an issue anymore. To which I say, exactly. Homosexuality is a ridiculous luxury imposed upon the backs of decent people because you now have time to sin all you want while the rest of us do the work. Guys, this just keeps going and going and going. But do you know what it all really says? It says, I hate God. I hate His Scripture. I hate what it says, and I hate those that stand for it. God is chauvinistic. God is judgmental. God is xenophobic. And sometimes, very confidently, you'll get the assertion, no, no, my God is love. He's not like that at all. But you ask them to show you that in the Bible, and they can't find 1 John 4. And they never read the first three chapters of 1 John. Their God is being redefined in their own minds because they are their own God. We need to put the world on a collision course with the true nature of our God. That He loves us enough to confront our sinful condition so that we can be born of heaven and liberate the rest of mankind. By the way, I'm not going to get on a doctrinal high horse today. But in the same way that those who believed in replacement theology, the church replaced Israel, fall victim to, well, then maybe the Mormons replaced us. Or maybe Islam replaces us. It's a self-defeating argument. And it's not true. We never replaced Israel. When dispensationalists in the 1830s and 40s began saying God dealt with mankind differently in this time period than this time period. And then differently, in fact, there are seven different time periods. When they began teaching that, well, then who's to say that during this time period God is not accepting of homosexuality? When we impose our thoughts on the Scripture rather than let the Scripture determine our thoughts, those errors catch up with us. This is the church's fault. We have made our interpretation so sloppy that Jesus is not really the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to repent of that. I don't want to be a part of it. This next slide, I get that you may not be able to read it all. Listen to this. Overall, a solid majority of white mainline Protestants, 62%, now favor allowing gays and lesbians to wed, with just 33% opposed, according to a July 2015 Pew Research Survey Center poll. 
A similar share, 63% say there is no conflict between their religious beliefs and homosexuality. Do you find that unconscionable? Okay, that's Protestants. I put a chart in here that shows those that as of July have come out and said they sanction same-sex marriage, conservative Jewish movement, Episcopal Church, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Presbyterian Church USA, uh, Society of Friends, Quaker, Unitarian Universalist Association of Churches, United Church of Christ. And that number's growing. Whose fault is that? 2 Timothy 4 says it so clearly, and we're sure that it applies to the end times, and we're living at the end times, but we cannot say one person it applies to. Have you noticed that? Hey, do you feel like we're in the... Yeah, yeah, brother. Any minute, it's time. Do you, do you feel like prophecy's true? Yes, yes, it's happening all around us. Then name some sinners around you that are causing it. Oh, uh, well, you know, that's not our place. <laughs> okay. Oh, all right. You play nice with the world. You just do it. I don't want friendship with the world. 2 Timothy 4.3 says it this way. For the time will come. I'm telling you it's now come. When men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their hearts away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Has there ever been a more ridiculous myth than a 67-year-old man can decide that he's Mr. Potato Man and pull off parts and put on parts and now he's a woman? Somebody sent me a little thing that had a redneck with his golden retriever in a wedding dress and it said, Pound, love wins! They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Hear me, Christian, you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Oh, you got to expect it. You have to know it's coming. Brace for it. Ladies, it may not be so sociable when you get your nails done anymore. You might be an intolerant bigot simply because you do not approve of wicked behavior. If your parents fought in the civil rights movement, then you prepare to watch their work sullied when they fought for equal status as a human being. That's going to be compared to equal status for a behavior. And if we have equal status for all behaviors, then why are pedophiles in jail? But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of if you're an evangelist, what do you do besides confront sinners with their situation and invite them to a heavenly change by the power of God? The work of an evangelist is so needed today. Maybe not evangelists that duck their heads and raise their pinkies to get saved in giant crowds and tomorrow nobody cares. But evangelists that actually have contact with life some sense of accountability to a local church and a mandate to grow in the kingdom. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now, in Acts eleven eighteen, you can make your note. I want to tell you that repentance is different than what people... I can't get down there. 
I repent. Repentance is different than what people say. Eh, people talk about repentance, you feel bad, blah, 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 blah. Repentance is a gift from God. Acts eleven eighteen says, So then, even the Gentiles were granted repentance unto life. You hear that? Granted. It is a gift to be able to turn around. Not everybody who sees their condition can turn around. It takes an act of grace from God for you to turn around. And the Jews were surprised that the Gentiles had that act of grace. Pastor Wade gave us a message last week called Social with Sodom. He told us to stay on topic in these discussions. Don't debate dietary laws with someone that doesn't care about the dietary laws to start with. Talk to them about the real issue. Why do you hate God and hate His Word? Why do you manifest such animosity towards me simply because I'm telling you what God's Word says? Stick to the topic. The other night on the street, some dear friends of mine were standing outside of F-Bar, 2, 3 in the morning, and someone was assailing their character. Someone was shouting insults at them about perverse sexual actions that they surely must be interested in each other. In their loving, consistent testimony, the man began to repent. He said, I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm treating you this way. Well, we know why. You're subject to demonic forces. And we're the liberating power. Come here, let me pray for you. These blinders can be removed. You don't have to do these things. You don't have to be subject to these things. We've seen many set free and you can be set free too. Look, there are empty chairs in this church. I feel every one of them with any species of sinner. That's just fine with me because that's not what they'll stay. He said, be careful how you define the terms. Love is not love if it's not truthful. It's not. Let the Bible define your terms. He told us, give testimony. Your testimony gives hope. When you tell people, I was a slave to sin, and now, look at me, I am free from that act. It gives them hope. Of course, you actually have to be free. It's not enough to just say you are. You have to be free. Therein lies another compromise in the church. We think that we are righteous because we stand positionally in Christ. Standing positionally in Christ may declare you righteous, but you're supposed to walk in righteousness. And when you don't, it steals your confidence. Wednesday's message. I talked to you about tribal knowledge. It's not enough to lean on our traditions and our axioms. You have to actually know the Word. It's our traditions that actually put us in this spot. The theological constructs of men. Things like during this age, God did this. But during this age, He felt differently about it. No, God's never changed. Just because the prevailing theological winds change, He's never changed. And those people, as fundamentalist as they are, and as much as we share so much in common, they're so wrong about the issue that they've paved the way for this gross error in the church. Somehow or another to them, the Older Testament is less important than the Newer Testament. By the way, both declare homosexuality an abomination. I'd like to use these last few minutes that I have with you to remind you of some things. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Let's put that on the screen. I want to emphasize the need for repentance. I've been saying this, but I want to say it again, and I want you to have this scripture from Wednesday and also from Sunday. 
doesn't matter how you redefine this. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. By the way, sexually immoral there has to do with fornication. It has to do with every kind of sexual impurity. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexuals. That pretty well covers the bases, don't you think? Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to this next line. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That testimony is important. You have to share with people that you came from somewhere. But God has liberated you and they can be liberated too. Secondly, we need to be compelled in our spirits to give hope in our own honest testimonies. Not just that people can be saved from sin in general. You need to be honest. Were you a pornographer? Look at a man who is struggling with sexual sin and say, I was just like you. That doesn't bring Christ down. That doesn't bring Christ down any more than it brought Christ down for Lazarus to come out of a grave. Say, so, well, I, I just would be embarrassed to do that. Then you're not dead in Christ. Shame on you. Grow up. If your life belongs to Christ, you don't have the right to be ashamed of anything anymore. Say, so, well, I, I think they might just be encouraged to it. Then you're not giving your testimony very well. If we're honest, Revelation 12, 14 says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the... Come on, the word of whose testimony? Your pastors? The word, the word of your worship leaders? The word of your Sunday school? Whose testimony? When's the last time you told your testimony? And I don't mean the little churchy cleaned up version. You know, nobody relates to that anyway. Let's just be honest. We know what you were. You are a monstrous sinner in the hands of a God that should have squished you and instead He saved you. So tell the truth. Unless, of course, you're sitting among us listening to the Word but not actually doing it and so you have no confidence in your testimony. Then you need to get to this altar and repent so that you're not got a leg in two worlds serving neither. Briefly, let's examine John the Baptist and also whales with digestion. I'll do this quickly because I love you and you know these stories. In Matthew 3, turn to Matthew 3. We only have to read a few verses. You'll get this right away because you're just that bright, that spirit-led. You'd actually have to be pretty obtuse to miss this. But we xenophobic people are. Xenophobic, really? We don't like xylophone? <laughs> we had to look that one up, actually. It means we don't like Xena, the princess warrior, right? In Matthew 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, it's amazing how consistent that message is, is near. This is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for whom? John the Baptist's ministry prepared the way for the Lord. You know what prepares the way for the Lord in people's lives? Confrontation with their sin. Now, 
They might not like you very much. They didn't like John the Baptist very much. How long was his ministry? About six months. How did it end? They cut his head off. But he prepared the way for the Lord. What do you love more, your head or the Lord? Think on this for a, se a second. People disparaged John the Baptist's ministry, but Jesus said nobody born of woman was ever greater than him. He made it his ambition, whether it was Herod he was addressing, or common people, or the Pharisees. Look at verse 8. This message is nowhere found, but it prepares the way for the Lord. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What would happen if we told people, you have to repent and prove it by your deeds or God will not accept you? Well, it might prepare the way for a genuine work of grace in their life. We're so confused theologically because we've wanted the minimum for so long that that's all we can see. And we have to qualify statements like homosexuality is wrong, but we love those people. Really? Ah, I didn't... Was that ever a question? Are you just trying to de-emphasize the fact that you said it was wrong? I mean, I'm waiting for a German YouTuber or something, you know, to get an extension cord with two male ends and try to plug it in. Or so. I mean, this is so silly. This is so silly that it shouldn't even have to be discussed. If you cannot reproduce, period, not an exception can't reproduce, it is not possible ever at any time. Then how could we consider that for the survival of humanity? John the Baptist in Matthew 11 and verse 7, Jesus says something about him that is pertinent for our time. And you might not get it normally because it has to do with a first century colloquialism. In 11.7... Jesus asked, speaking about John the Baptist, what did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? A reed swayed by the wind. Every Jewish school child around the age of five was taught a story. And the story that was circulating in Jesus' day was that a reed appeared resilient at first because it bent in any direction the wind blew. But God was after an oak of righteousness that could withstand any storm except the one that broke it, and that was the oak tree's glory. John the Baptist did not sway with the prevailing social winds. Are you a reed? Are you an oak tree? Because we're supposed to be oaks of righteousness. Everybody hearing that understood exactly what he meant on the same level that a Sunday school story would be understood at about age five. Turn with me to our last scripture. This is Jonah 4, verses 1 through 2. Whales and indigestion. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I'd like you to think on this for a minute. Jonah gives us insight through his prayer to the reason he did not want to go preach repentance to Nineveh. 
He didn't care about Nineveh. If he went and preached repentance, then they might get saved. He'd rather that they were just damned. You tell me what is loving. To get on a ship and run the opposite way from the truth and have to have a whale swallow you? Or to tell people the truth about their condition and the hope that God will change them? Listen, if something gives a whale indigestion, why do we stomach it so well? Hmm? That city repented and for almost a hundred years, babies didn't go to hell. They grew up to be people who loved the Lord. It eventually fell into wickedness again. But for almost a hundred years, anybody know where Nineveh is today? It's Mosul. It's Mosul, Iraq, and our sons and daughters have fought and died there again. And to this day, people do not want to go and preach repentance in Mosul because it might cost a life. Church, do you care more about your life or theirs? What is your motivating factor? I want to please the Lord, but in pleasing the Lord, He has taught me I have to care more about their life than mine. Tell me, is that not what the parable of the Good Samaritan's about? Most men say, what will happen to me if I go help him? But one man, the least likely man, said, what will happen to him if I don't go help him? Our motivation for preaching about homosexuality and every other sexual sin and every other kind of idolatry is not that we hate the sinner. That's not the motivation. The motivation is that we love them and worry what happens if we don't say and if not then, because it is possible to be a man the Lord hates. I won't debate that with you today, but consult the Scripture. Start in Psalm 5. It is possible to be hated by God. But those people are generally those who are so dedicated to promoting wickedness that they're a threat to everyone around them. We're going to stand to our feet.